You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. There is growing concern over COVID-19 and our keiki. The, Senator, the Centers for Disease Control alerted pediatricians treating children with coronavirus to look at a possible link with a rare and serious inflammatory disease. Dr. Marion Mellish is a pediatrician at Kapilani Medical Center and on the faculty at the University of Hawaii's John A. Burns School of Medicine. She's credited with diagnosing the first case of Kawasaki disease in Hawaii decades ago. The disease which was first identified in Japan, can damage a child's heart and normally affects children under the age of five. The CDC reached out to her earlier this month, and she tells us she's been asked to work with a team of international researchers from Toronto to Boston on a project related to Kawasaki's and COVID-19. She said this is how we are going to confront this pandemic together. From the limited information that I'm able to get, I doubt that this is going to be um, an exact match for Kawasaki disease. I think there are some features uh, that are probably shared, and ultimately this will probably show some interesting light on both diseases. But this is pediatric and multisystem inflammatory disease, and it's an association with an intense COVID outbreak in um, New York and New Jersey, and also in reported only so far from the cities. Um, in the world that are having intense outbreaks where you can expect a very large number of their population will be exposed. Uh, so this is true for London, where we've also heard about these cases. The early news reports that I've seen talk about possibly related to Kawasaki or toxic shock, and you have a background in both those areas. Yes, I do. Well, there are features that are probably similar. This is probably going to be three diseases. One of the characteristics of pediatric multisystem inflammatory disease is intense inflammation, a generalized rash. Some early evidence that I don't really understand of involvement of the interior of blood vessels and also, in the case of toxic shock, multi-organ dysfunction. In the case of Kawasaki disease, it is very definitely involvement of the arteries with inflammation. The pictures that I've seen look very much like Kawasaki disease in terms of the rash, but then the rash is not entirely specific. The rash itself can take many forms. Uh, it can be a big blotchy rash. It can be a generalized all over scarlet fever type of rash. It can be a rash that looks like hives, and it can be a rash that looks like measles. So Kawasaki disease is an illness of young children. There are some genetic links to Asian ancestry, particularly Japanese, Korean, and to uh, some extent Chinese, um, Filipino, um, Pacific Islanders, and where it is far more common in people of these ancestries than people of unmixed European ancestry. In Hawaii, um, where we have a multi-ethnic population, one the rate in children of Japanese ancestry is 15 to 18 times higher than it is in children of uh, unmixed European ancestry. What can you um, tell us about the numbers here in Hawaii? It varies from year to year. We have seen as many as 120 cases, new cases in uh, a year, and as little as 40. Interestingly, at a time when COVID is receding in our community, we have recently seen three children in a 10-day period with Kawasaki disease. That would not have been surprising in many years because we often have had one to two cases, uh, new cases every week. But this particular year, we've had very little Kawasaki disease since December. And uh, so these three cases coming all together were a little bit of a surprise. We don't always hear about fatal cases of Kawasaki, though, right? Well, before we had effective treatment for Kawasaki disease, the mortality rate was at least two out of 100 now, at least in uh, places where Kawasaki disease is well recognized, as in Asia and in our state, we see patients uh, very early. We treat them with a condition that was actually designed and, and uh, pioneered in Hawaii and six other United States locations, which has been proven to reduce the death rate and the involvement of the heart arteries. So Kawasaki disease used to be a fatal condition. At least a, a 2% mortality rate is a high mortality rate for children, uh, higher than measles, for example, higher than higher than influenza, certainly. Well, we have a trading center at Kapiolani, correct? We have a treatment uh, program that um, extends throughout the state. 
um, most of it, nearly all the physicians in the state who care for children have referred to our program. And we, we treat and follow children on a regular basis. Would it be fair to say that our researchers here see more Kawasaki cases than most states on the mainland? Absolutely. And we see patients on average two, about two days earlier in the course of their illness than mainland centers do, even in places where there's a lot of awareness. So early diagnosis and treatment is very important for Kawasaki disease. And as people learn more about this pediatric multisystem inflammatory disease, they were, and of course that's what they're trying to do by getting increasing patient awareness and getting children into see physicians so people can learn more about that disease. Now, you also do work with coronaviruses. I've been very, very interested in coronavirus, which our state has so far, and our population have handled probably better than anywhere else in the United States in terms of compliance with social distancing, mask wearing, and the things that we have done have resulted in the near disappearance of new cases of of COVID. If there's a relationship to Kawasaki disease, that will become clear. There are probably some important similarities that shouldn't be Shouldn't be a surprise. Number one, in serious disease in adults, which of course affects affects only a very minority of adults infected with COVID, it is known they can have an intense inflammatory reaction that damages multiple, that damages their blood vessels and multiple organs, including uh, renal failure, heart failure, the tendency to have increased clotting within the inflamed blood vessels. This is something that is sometimes loosely called cytokine storm, where the natural chemicals in the body which promote inflammation are increased many fold. And then this itself causes disease. Now, inflammation is an important part of trying to fight infections, but when inflammation is unchecked, and it, it can itself be damaging. So it's runaway and, in inflammation. And this is known to be a serious problem in uh, adults in ICUs who have COVID. The other thing about children is we are learning about Kawasaki disease in children, but it is still a big mystery area because most in every area that has been looked at, uh, a very small minority of children with recognized respiratory or other signs of COVID are a, a very small number of all children infected now that we're learning more about how many people are getting infected through antibody testing. Uh, so in a place like New York where estimates are 40 to 60 percent of people may already have encountered COVID, uh, if children are getting an inflammatory condition triggered by the uh, coronavirus uh, that causes uh, a cytokine storm and multi-organ failure, like in the kidneys, heart, etc., and blood vessel inflammation that causes clotting, then this is how the tip of the iceberg can sometimes be seen. But it has been known from Wuhan and across American intensive care units for children, a tiny minority of children, often those with comorbidities, do have a serious um, inflammatory component that uh, causes their lungs, uh, hearts, and uh, kidneys to fail. I mean, people are learning a lot, and there's a lot of interest in it. The New York people, despite the fact that they're still fighting uh, disease uh, everywhere, they have set up a a bunch of uh, research tests and a consortium that uh, we are going to join of Kawasaki disease researchers that has been uh, based in Canada out of the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children, are planning to study the blood vessels of the heart, which is one of the areas that is affected in Kawasaki disease. And they're planning to look at this in children with Kawasaki, which we do already, and uh, in children who have the pediatric inflammatory condition, wherever it might show up. New things are showing up all the time, things we didn't expect. We talked about ventilators. Well, now we're talking about the need also to support the kidneys, which often fail in the small group of people who end up in intensive care units. Now we're learning more about children who might end up in intensive care units that have something that might be um, similar to both toxic shock and Kawasaki disease. And in fact, It's very well known that viruses circulate among children, often more than one virus at a time even, and it's also 
been known that the common cold type of coronaviruses sometimes do trigger Kawasaki disease. So there are probably some similarities, but there are probably some big differences as well. I was conducted um, by uh, CDC, some other international researchers, to ask what we've been seeing. There's a very active Kawasaki disease research group in Boston, which is another hard-hit city. And Dr. Jay Newberger has been recruited and active in that area. And the researcher who's leading the study of heart involvement from Toronto is Brian McCrindle. So, you know, some light will be shed, but it seems like the, the New York group is, is becoming quite, quite active in this area. And I think they're going to be the ones to define the syndrome more, more completely, and then people can learn. But, you know, this outbreak has surprised people at every turn, and that is going to apparently continue. But we have learned a lot since January. I mean, th that is not even half a year, and we're in better condition to deal with it than we were in January. That was Dr. Marion Mellish, a pediatrician with expertise in Kawasaki disease, toxic shock, and coronaviruses. She works at Kapi'olani Medical Center and the UH Medical School and is collaborating with an international team of researchers on a project related to COVID-19. And it's now time to take a look around the globe where the uh, World Health Organization promises an independent inquiry into its response to the pandemic as the U.S. renews its criti criticism of China. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday the 18th of May. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. The WHO promises an independent inquiry into its response to the pandemic as the US renews its criticism of China. We hear about some promising results from an American vaccine trial and the Ghanaian World War II veteran following in the footsteps of Captain Tom. The head of the World Health Organization has promised an independent review of its response to the pandemic at the earliest opportunity. The US has accused the WHO of mishandling the outbreak by siding with China. Speaking at an online meeting of the WHO's 194 member states, the US Health Secretary Alex Azar renewed America's criticism. There was a failure by this organization to obtain the information that the world needed, and that failure cost many lives. In an apparent attempt to conceal this outbreak, at least one member state made a mockery of their transparency obligations with tremendous cost for the entire world. Earlier, the Chinese President Xi Jinping insisted his government had acted responsibly and backed calls for an inquiry. China supports the idea of a comprehensive review of the global response to sum up experience and address deficiencies. This work should be based on science and professionalism, led by the WHO and conducted in an objective and impartial manner. A U.S. biotech firm says early trials of a possible vaccine suggest it could help the body neutralize coronavirus. Moderna says that in tests, the vaccine produced levels of antibodies similar to those in people who've recovered from COVID-19. The firm's president, Dr. Stephen Hogue, says it is an encouraging sign. All subjects who had received two doses of our vaccine in the first two dose-level cohorts had seroconverted uh, to develop antibodies in their blood that bound the virus. Those same antibodies that those people had developed actually could neutralize the virus and prevent its ability to infect human cells. We're very pleased by that result because it suggests we're on the right path with this vaccine. Three of the biggest car makers in the US, General Motors, Ford and Fiat Chrysler, are restarting production on Monday. The assembly plants, which have been idle for nearly two months, will run with fewer shifts and with increased safety measures to protect workers, including masks, gloves and plastic curtains. Loss of smell or taste have been added to the official list of symptoms requiring self-isolation in the UK. They're classed as less common symptoms by the WHO, but Professor Claire Hopkins, a consultant ear, nose and throat surgeon at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London, says there's good evidence they're a clear indicator of COVID-19. I think this recognition today is very important both for patients who have lost their sense of smell over the last two to three months to know that it was likely to be related to COVID. But most importantly, as we move forward and we start to ease the lockdown, that patients with new infections can easily identify that and self-isolate.
Two days after football restarted in Germany, the English Premier League has agreed to resume limited training. From Tuesday, players can work in small groups, although there'll be no contact. And equipment and even playing surfaces will have to be disinfected after each session. It's still not clear if matches will be able to resume as planned on the 12th of June. The sports that have returned have done so with empty stadiums. South Korea's K-League was one of the first, but now one team there has raised eyebrows with its attempt to fill at least some of its seats, as our correspondent Laura Bicker explains. When the game was broadcast, this was Seoul FC against Gwangju, the cameras panned to the stands and a number of shocked viewers who were kind of looking at these, shall we call them, premium mannequins in tight Seoul FC football strips noticed them and started sharing their pictures on social media quite shocked because they believed they were indeed sex dolls. Police in France have been told not to use drones to monitor whether people are obeying coronavirus restrictions. In a case brought by two human rights groups in Paris, the court ruled that such actions were a serious and clearly illegal attack on the right to a private life. The police argued the footage wasn't recorded. A Second World War veteran from Ghana is aiming to walk two miles a day this week to raise money for frontline workers and fellow veterans across Africa. 95-year-old Private Joseph Hammond, who's using the hashtag WalkWithHammond, hopes to raise $600,000. He's released a YouTube video with the charities Forces Help Africa and the Guba Foundation. Inspired by what can a more did in Britain to raise funds for the frontline workers, I've also decided to do the same thing to walk two miles a day for seven days to raise funds for vulnerable veterans and the frontline workers all involved to kick away COVID-19 from Africa. And that's the Coronavirus Global Update. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. It's now time to test your Hawaiian history with our Backyard Quiz. For today's quiz, we're testing your knowledge about the Friendly Isle. We're looking for the name of a man who was born in Hamburg, Germany and studied civil engineering. He wanted to join the California Gold Rush in 1849, but ended up uh, delayed stopovers in Sydney, Australia, Tahiti, and Lahaina. At the Maui port, he listed his occupation as surveyor. He made his way to Molokai, where he stayed as a house guest of Reverend Harvey Rexford Hitchcock. There he met High Chiefess Kalama Baha, a student of the Hitchcocks at the time. They married in 1851. After a brief stay in Honolulu, who, he moved back to Molokai, where he established farming operations and a sugar plantation. He built a sugar mill in the 1870s, which still stands today and shows the sugar manufacturing process of the time. It also bears his name. Who is the German surveyor and businessman that we're talking about? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. In some cities across the country, there are reports of a surge of child abuse. 
Our first line of defense in reporting such crimes often falls to the teachers and doctors who interact with children and can spot the warning signs. But with schools closed and fewer people going in for doctor's appointments, we lose what experts call the mandated reporters of such abuse. In these challenging times, however, advocates for child protection are looking to spread the word on how individuals in the community can help spot, report, and stop child abuse. Tina Porras-Jones is the Vice President of Community Building Programs at PAC, Parents and Children Together. She spoke with the Conversations' Harrison Patino about the resources that Hawaii residents can access to help stop abuse in the community. A lot of the cases, a lot of the advocates nationally, as well as ourselves at Parents and Children Together, are concerned and worried about the underreporting and not reporting at all of child abuse cases going on due to the stay-at-home orders. Typically, our teachers, our daycare providers, our doctors, medical health professionals are the trained professionals who know how to, you know, cite child abuse or know the signs and symptoms of child abuse and neglect. And therefore, with our kiki not being exposed to school and doctors, normal doctors visits, preschools and that sort of thing, um, we feel our numbers have increasingly dropped. Have we seen a tangible decrease or a dramatic decrease, rather, in the actual numbers of reports of abuse that have been coming in since this crisis began? Yeah, great question. So we at Parents and Children Together oversee a um, contract, a couple of contracts with Child Welfare Services, but I'll use one as an example, which in Hawaii we call Voluntary Case Management Services, which is like the medium to high response. They subcontracted out the state. And we typically have about 12 to 15 referrals a week. And on the annual, we serve about, you know, 900 to maybe 1,100 families. And since the course of this COVID-19, we have seen a decrease to last week was seven cases that were reported at our level. So I would say 50%. And nationwide, scanning the lit reviews, it's about the same 50% in decrease of numbers. When you see that dramatic decrease that probably correlates with a lack of reported cases, how do organizations like yours ramp up your efforts to combat the issue in the first place? getting out to the public and letting folks know that if you see something, you hear something, say something. I think it's important whether you say something to your neighbor, if it's you hear your neighbor's children crying on hours, or you hear arguing and children are in the home, because exposure to DV is also child abuse. So you don't necessarily have to call into the hotline. If, if you're comfortable talking to your neighbor and you, you see them as a friend or, or a Hanai family, reach out to them, give them the resources. We as the community can know that. I mean, it's really easy in Hawaii. You just got to remember 211, and that's the Aloha United Way. You can call that number, and they have resources for everything from parenting to medical to food to shelter, housing. So if you can just remember the 211 and share that with maybe the neighbor or the person you see who may, may be in crisis. You know, that's, that's what we got to do. You see something, you got to say something. And also calling to the hotline, you know, the Department of Human Services receives about 19,000 phone calls a year and about 4,500 of those go to cases. So the rest of them are really information calls, people calling to inquire, you know, I've seen this, I've heard this, and just wanting to keep Kiki safe. I think that's important in these times of, of sheltering at home. We got to be the eyes and ears of the kids wherever we are, whether it's in our home, at the grocery store, or wherever we may be. So what you said before really struck with me. It's that a lot of these kinds of people who would normally be reporting these crimes, such as, say, teachers or guidance counselors, are either out of work or their jobs are on hold, and they're unable to report these crimes in the first place. So I think it really says something about the importance of educators, that when their occupation is put on hold, we really lose this first line of defense in terms of spotting child abuse. Absolutely. I have for many years, and I have three children of my own, preached to the, probably to you, the choir, knowing how important our, our teachers are in Hawaii and our educators are, even our preschool educators, early childhood educators, anybody who's on the front line, our after-school programs, who are on the front line with our, our children, our keiki every day, they are so important to help us recognize signs and symptoms of child abuse. And just checking in with kids, you know, sometimes kids need a, a different set of eyes and ears outside of their family to just know they can come to and talk story and relax and check in and, you know, just share what how their day has been going. Mandated reporters, like you said, these are those teachers, those doctors, people like that, these mandated reporters mm -hmm. of abuse who can no longer spot the warning signs, maybe as effectively as they could have before this pandemic. In terms of just encouraging people to be a little bit more proactive in watching the signs, what sort of proactive steps can people take right now to spot abuse and maybe stop it if it's within their power? Outside of the, if you, you hear something, see something, say something, I would say to really be vigilant and just do the extra steps. 
check in with your neighbor, check in with your colleague. You know, for us here at Parents and Children Together, we have 400 plus employees that we moved to working remotely from home. Um, we were seen as an essential service provider and everyone is still on the front line. Case managers, educators are doing different services. So we have our, for example, our early childhood education, our Head Start, they are giving meals out for the week and giving out handouts. So um, typically just when you do the exchange of information or exchange of food, your food service, um, folks who are doing the grab-and-go meals, you know, be be aware. We were trying to uh, reach out to see if, you know, training was needed among these new identified volunteers and identified, I like to call them uh, social service frontliners, if they could, you know, receive some training. So when they're passing out food or passing out good or needed things for families, that they we could help them to identify and um, give the family resources then too. So I would imagine that social distancing and the general fear of the coronavirus in the first place can make the act of intervening in abuse cases difficult. Is that the case? Absolutely. We have followed directives from the Department of Human Services, and I have to say that they've been really great out there. Our state has been great going out to see children, going out in the front lines to ensure child safety. And when you're, you know, we really have to kind of break down a case and when is it you must put eyes and ears in person on the child and when is that bottom line child safety you know once you're doing your initial visit we don't know the family when we're taking that step into the home we are still conducting our initial visit face to face as much as possible and then as we get to know the family we do televisits teleservices even uh, children who are doing visitation supervised visitation with their families that are already involved with child welfare services we do our best to either do video conferencing with foster parents and biological parents or going there to provide the device for families, you know, because a lot of times we've seen the inequity amongst these times of COVID. So one of the real hidden tragedies of this global health crisis is that it's really complicated the issue of abuse at home. Do you think the mm-hmm. lessons we learn from this in addressing issues like child abuse, is that going to change how we address this kind of stuff in the future? Is that going to give us more insight into how to combat this, especially when it's in a situation where maybe intervening or maybe accessing resources isn't as easy as it once was? I think this is a great opportunity for us to really take what we've learned in the first, you know, 30 days of our um, stay-at-home order here in Hawaii, along with, you know, watching our our neighbors in the continental United States and and all over how they've been activating child welfare services across our country. And you hit it on the spot with, you know, we'll have to do things teleservice, we'll have to still have mandated visits that go in that just demand we be absolutely vigilant on child safety and seeing people in person. And the resources itself... Um, We've been able to, I think as a country and as a state, we've been able to kind of herd our families and our ohana here in Hawaii to ensure people are getting fed, to ensure people are are knowing, you know, having the support for the abuse that that may be taken at home. People are financially, you know, having going through hard times. They're they're all cooped up in one home, um, having multiple, you know, maybe family or generations. And this has been a, a great, I think, lesson learned for all of us to see how we can operate with a with a medical um, pandemic like this in the future and and take all of these lessons that we've learned and and move forward so that we can you know do better next time obviously and above all else stay watchful maybe even more so than before absolutely be vigilant stay watchful know that our kiki are at home and i think the importance of like the educators the frontline folks the importance of their role that they play in our in our kiki when we're raising our kiki here in hawaii I mean, you, you think about it, most folks are two working families and children are in after school care, daycare, you know, these are our frontline folks and, and really how do we come together in this time of COVID to prevent maybe, a, I mean, to maybe start a parent, a reach out line, you know, we have lots of resources in our state, but it would be good for in our agency to try to ramp up each agency specific so that they have access to all of the services that, you know, they've been getting. That was Tina Porras-Jones of Parents and Children Together talking with producer Harrison Patino about efforts to root out child abuse during this pandemic.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity's ReStore, a home improvement store and donation center, announcing its reopening, hours 9.30 to 4.30, Monday to Saturday, honoluluhabitat.org. Healthy eating, it's something we all want to do, but sometimes it's just too hard to give up our favorite treats. But if we take it one step at a time, the small changes we make can lead to greater integration of a plant-based diet in our everyday lives. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about how to start a new nutrition routine. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sippy's Restaurants, now offering dishes such as chili in bulk bags and pouches ready for the family to heat and eat or to freeze for later. Online ordering at zippies.com or by downloading the app. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat highlights a story about force majeure and our H-Power garbage to energy plant. Editor Chad Blair on the line today. How's your Monday going? Pretty good, Captain. Yourself? Very good. You know, good, I have good, to good. I have to confess, force majeure is one of my favorite words. <laughs> <laughs> or two words, I guess, more yeah. accurately. Yeah. If well, my uh, French translation is accurate, superior force, is that is that the way you translate yes, it? Yes, act of God. And I learned about yes. it through one of those uh, long and boring city council meetings decades ago when we were talking about H-Power Plant. And we were talking yeah, about well, rail. We are, in fact, today talking about H-Power and the city council as well, where force majeure came up. You know, I, I think it was just not more than a week or so ago, you and I spoke about Marcel Honoré's story on the trouble, the challenge the city has in sending Opala uh, to H-Power, specifically the Covanta Honolulu Resource Recovery Venture. That's the that's the power plant out in West Oahu, uh, that burns a uh, trash converted into energy for Hawaiian Electric. And Marcel's story was since COVID hit town, now it's over two months now, tourism has dropped significantly, and so has the amount of trash that the city is producing. About a 15% drop that works out to a, about five tons less than uh, we were on schedule to uh, to put into H power. Well, here's the problem: uh, if the city doesn't meet a certain level, 800,000 tons a year in trash going into H power, it actually has to pay money uh, to make up that difference. That is something in the contract, which brings us to force majeure. <laughs> and this is something that, um, because of the story that ran, uh, the city council was asking the director of environmental services. You know, what's the deal here? Well, it turns out Hawaiian Electric called the city and said, did you know about the force majeure clause? If there is an act of God, some sort of extraordinary event, the city is no longer liable to pay that money. And that appears to be the case uh, where we are now. So that gave us a break. It's, it seems to. It also uh, absolves Hawaiian Electric uh, from liability as well. Now, there are some catches. How long does this force majeure, or in this case, COVID, last? That's really hard to estimate, especially going forward, you know, with the economic challenges that we're facing. If it's longer than 2,000, excuse me, longer than 270 days, there appears to be an opportunity for the city to opt out of the contract. In the meantime, the city has also got to produce weekly reports to say, uh, you know, where are we on this? How much trash is going in there? So it's unclear how long this is going to last, but this, this, at least for now, seems to give the city a break. Well, you know, it, it's funny because when I first read that story, I was really astounded how much garbage we produce. You know, it's tied to our tourism industry. So those numbers were really staggering. Yeah. Interestingly enough, we have another story up from um, from Claire Caulfield, and she reports on environmental things. And, and that particular story focuses on recycling. Where do we send our recycling? So even as we push to try and recycle as much as possible, by the way, I'll just give you the answer. It's California primarily that we send our, our recyclable uh, trash. As much as we've been trying to recycle more and more, right? We have the blue bins, everybody separates and so forth. In fact, we still produce a heck of a lot of trash. And uh, the city has fallen short over the last six years to the tune of about $2.7 million, money that it has had to pay to both Hawaiian Electric and then also to pay uh, to Covanta. So it's a big financial loss. Um, uh, so, so it's kind of an irony, right? We're supposed to try and recycle more. We're supposed to produce less trash. And at the same time, we're going to be penalized financially for not making enough trash thanks to COVID. 
Right, and I know in talking with Lori Kaikina, the director of environmental right. service services, she has said that yeah, it seems crazy, and and you know she wants more, I guess, flexibility to be right. able to manage that. And uh, I know I've, I mean, I recycle, but I also have been putting more stuff in my garbage can so it does get burned to, to kind of yeah help yeah us out, you know right? here's a yeah here's another kind of funny twist about the whole thing. The city council, some members proposed, what if we allow people that make what's known as chipped wood debris, debris that normally is deposited in the landfill, the PVT landfill that's uh, also out there, that's construction and demolition debris. What if we gave a, a, a waiver of, to waive that $91 tipping fee so that you could then take that stuff and put it in H power? In other words, to make up the deficit of trash. Well, Kahikini said, no, no, we're not going to do that. If we do that, other people are other tippers are going to want some sort of benefit uh, as well, and that's not going to be fair. Right. Sense of fairness there. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was uh, Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Marcel Henry's story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. Tyree Jenkins and Dr. Jeffrey Peterson at Jenkins Eye Care, accepting patients needing urgent or emergency care. Telemedicine consultations now available, JenkinsEyeCare.com. Aloha, this is Derek Malama, host of Kanikapila Sunday on HBR One. Every Sunday afternoon, we play great Hawaiian music, showcasing talent from across the islands. And if you miss the show, you can stream archived shows whenever you like, anytime that fits your schedule and mood. For the full list of HPR music shows available on demand, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we look at a surveyor and entrepreneur who made a mark on Molokai. An immigrant from Germany, he married High Chiefess Kalama Va'a in the 1850s and settled into a homestead in Kalai. In 1886, he became Molokai's surveyor and held the titles Commissioner of Fencers and Road Supervisor. Uh, he, his home was also close to Kalau Papa, and he served as a supplier and liaison to the people there who were not afflicted by Hansen's disease. He started a business selling crops, which included corn, wheat, and kalo. After tariffs on sugar exports were removed, his family got into sugar and built a sugar mill. Compared to larger sugar plantations, it was a modest operation, and the sugar mill used outdated technology even for the time. But the mill still stands today and is on the U.S. National Registry of Historic Places. It bears the name of R.W. Meyer, short for Rudolph Wilhelm. And congratulations to our winner, Carl. He says he lives on Oahu but was born and raised on Molokai, and he says he knows the Meyer family. How awesome is that? That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Ali'i children were encouraged to write journals as they were educated at Royal School. Well, a newly released book showcases Queen Liliuokalani's diaries in her later years. Compiled by historian David Forbes and edited by Barbara Pope, the diaries covered 1885 to 1900. The Queen's daily notations, you know, they were seized by those who overthrew the monarchy and who were looking for information to use against her. 125 years later, they are now in book form, which gives us a slice of life as a royal. Forbes details the significance of roast pig on the menu and tells us what uh, the Queen thought about hula. Those familiar with the state archives say David Forbes probably knows more about what's kept in the repository than anyone in Hawaii, having poured over its treasures for some 65 years. Now you can access those diaries thanks to the book. What's revealed on the handwritten pages of the Queen's journals range from the mundane to the mood of politics at the time of the overthrow. 
their existence was known mostly. Uh, they were divided up early on between the Bishop Museum and the um, State Archives. The State Archives collection was acquired by a seizure when the 1895 counter-revolution failed. Um, the Hawaiian government went in and searched her residence for evidence to use against her that she was complicit in the um, revolt. And they seized the diaries as evidence of what she was up to. And those diaries, they were never returned to her. They remained the property of the Attorney General. And they were sealed up in tin boxes. And in 1920-21, they were transferred to the State Archives when they were opened for the first time since since the Revolution. So they were seized as evidence. They were seized as evidence. And there was one diary that they didn't get a hold of. I don't know why, but they didn't. And that is still owned by a, a, a descendant of John Dominus's family. And that diary has never been seen by the, pub, uh, by the public until, or used, until this, this account uh, was published. Okay, so you have it included in there. Oh, yes. The missing diary. Yes. Fabulous. It's very interesting, and it it, uh, it explains a lot of stuff that we didn't know about. Is there some reason why it wasn't kept together? No one knows. Um, Iaokea, Curtis Iaokea, who was one of her trusted uh, friends and who was then in her business office as the lead trustee of her estate, um, took some of the diaries and gave them to the Bishop Museum. Now, we don't know why they were not... Those were not put in the archives also, but they weren't. So um, we can't find out. And there are some diaries that are missing. Whether they, they were always diaries or whether they were thrown out or something happened to them, that we, there's no way of knowing. Now, when uh, I last saw you at the State Archives, you shared with me that uh, one of the interesting things that you discovered by poring over these documents is that the Queen kind of notated a couple of times that but she didn't much care for some of the hula. Well, I don't think that she had much to do with hula because she was raised as a Westerner in many ways. And her her brother, Kalakau, was very, obviously very interested. But I think that she just didn't, whether she didn't like the hula or whether they hula people showed up at the wrong time, we don't know. Uh, there's one entry where a group of Hawaiians came to Wanda to, to uh, present her with a hula performance, and she said, I have no time for hulas. Now, whether she just was bored with hulas or whether she was so wound up with po the political mess she was in, it's hard to tell. But, I mean, that's a statement that comes out, and um, it's going to be rather surprising to people, I think. So do you have the name of the the, the chant or the hula that they were going to do for her that she never saw no, or anything no, like that? No, she didn't. She didn't get into excruciating detail like that. I mean, the, most of the diaries are little pocket diaries, and and there are probably eight lines of a of, of, of blank that you can fill in per date. And um, she just didn't do that. If she'd written down everything like that, it, it, the book would have been twice as good and three times as long. But she didn't, and we can't go back and ask her now. So. And the condition um, of these diaries, what can you share about that? Well, they're in very great, they're in fine sh shape. They haven't been used very much, and, you know, they were locked up for 25 years. And one of the problems is that the writing is tiny on tiny sheets, and it's in pencil on erasable paper, so that there are some, some entries that are illegible, and some have been erased. Now, who erased them, I don't know. Maybe she she probably did. Uh, again, we don't know why that's happened. Any other interesting things that you came across that you think people might be struck by that might show a different dimension of the queen? Well, I mean, there are all kinds of things, uh, things that she used to do, and, and they're sort of daily routines that she would get into, uh, uh, unhappy uh, relationships with her husband. And they seem to have had what one person termed a dog and cat relationship, and they'd get into quarrels, and he'd go away and come back. And she seems to have had an agreement with him that for repentance, when he came back, he had to bring a roast pig for her lunch. And, okay. And so, so there are several roast pigs that show up on the, on the lunch menu. And, you know, it's ordinary things that she would do, like planting in the garden. Or do you think that she was planting native things? No. She planted roses, gardenias, and violets. 
and she had chickens, and she she sold the eggs to the neighbors. Now that's a hardly a, a royal activity, but I mean this is what she was doing. She was literally making egg money. And did she talk about any other pets she might have had? No, I mean I don't remember seeing anything about a cat or a dog. She talks about her horses a little bit. There there must have been animals around. I mean everybody has animals. I think oh. I've seen a picture of her. And an animal. That's why I ask. So just was well, curious. Well, Fluffy is down in history is nameless. But there are odd things, you know, in the diaries. There was one thing that stumped me in 1886. She went with Mrs. McGrew and rode an elevator. Well, I couldn't find out what that was. And I, the, Jason, the crack archivist at the State Archives, was able to track that down for me. There was a Mrs. Nicolon who had a gun shop on Fort Street. And... Above the gun shop was a ladies' department where there was fancy goods and underwear and that sort of thing. And that's where they went up to. But the idea of a, of a ladies' department over a gun shop was pretty, pretty odd. And, and I, that's now in a footnote so people know what it is. So do you have pictures of the diaries in the book? Um, no. We were going to, and the pictures didn't show up very well, but we do have a photograph of the the beginning of her 1893 diary when she she mentions the overthrow. One of the things that strikes you is that she was very busy. It was sort of nonstop activity, charitable activities. You know, she was constantly arranging to have readings and concerts and things like that for charitable purposes. And this went on and on and on. This is one of the ways that ladies could raise money for, for good causes. I mean, she she contributed to a ladies' lunchroom for a while. And all of this sort of activity that that just sort of passes you by, there she is. I mean, some of the small things that she did for this period are as as interesting as her talking about going to the state balls and um, that sort of thing. Anything more just on the politics of the time? Oh, well, there's quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, that was crucial to her life. But again, uh, she would mention, I have to see so-and-so, I have to see such-and-such, and and we talked about business. She didn't always mention exactly what they were talking about, but sometimes I was able to find out by reading other things what had just happened. And when I could do that, I put that sort of information in in as a footnote. Okay, but you were more struck by just kind of the everyday life of the queen. Well, you know, she's presented to um, modern Hawaiians as a mythic goddess now, and but she was a real person, and she... You know, she didn't just swan around, um, you know, granting audiences to people and, and so on. She was a hardworking woman, and this is the kind of life she had, she had taken up for herself, and um, it's very interesting. She shows up more as a real person in the diaries than people are going are, are gonna to expect. And so how long have you been poring over these diaries? For a long, long time. <laughs> it's been yeah. about 10 years. 10 years, wow. I mean, because you've been poking around the, those state archives for, what, 65? Something like that. I started in there in 1957. Now, you're, you're not here on the islands anymore. Do you miss just going down there and digging through those boxes? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's like an alcoholic withdrawing, you know? Mm. But, of course, right now, even if I went there, one, I'd be quarantined in a hotel, and two, the archives isn't open. But I intend to come back because I may well be working on a volume of her letters, which I have actually about 80% done. So um, the idea is perhaps to do that as a companion volume to the the, the diaries. Okay. Her life will be as complete as I can make it. I've probably read more of the, of the stuff in there than anybody ever has or ever will. And if the State Archives is the box that holds Hawaii's most important papers... It's, it's the great treasure house of Hawaii. And the, the amazing thing about it is, unlike most uh, repositories, Hawaii has never had a major fire that cleaned out the government offices. We've been very fortunate, haven't we? I mean, the first document 
in the earliest documents in the archives go back to the 1790s. Well, it is interesting because I get the opportunity to talk to authors of books who get to use the Hawaiian language newspapers and yes. and those those even the court records that were in Hawaiian and it's just spurred a whole array of 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 new books that brings those things out to the forefront again. Well, one of the one of the drawbacks on uh, the modern thrust to do all the Hawaiian language stuff is that they need to always remember that if they can't understand something, read the English newspapers of the same period, because Hawaiian is a little bit fugitive, and Hawaiian reporting is very different than Western reporting. So that from a Western standpoint, it will become abundantly clear what was going on. That was historian David Forbes talking about a new book distributed by University of Hawaii Press. The collection of diaries of Queen Liliuokalani was published thanks to a nonprofit dedicated to perpetuate the Queen's legacy. Hui Hanai was established in 1969. It has published a number of books, including The Queen's Songbook and Hawaii Story by Hawaii's Queen. Uh, the diaries has been 10 years in the making, and David Forbes is currently walk- working on a collection of the Queen's letters. for today. Tomorrow, we talk about Medicaid issues related to COVID. Are you having a problem with health insurance because you've been laid off? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation. <music>